It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel here with Christina Greer and Alex Lynn. Hello's. Hello there. Hello. It's Wednesday afternoon. In a few minutes, we are going to be joined by Catherine Garcia, the Sanitation Commissioner, Food Czar, Nigel Wed Czar, and General Get It Done Person of the de Blasio administration, who is now left the administration and is running for mayor. After that, you're going to hear from the people of the uh, People's Podcast uh, who went out and talked to uh, people, man on the street, woman on the street, people on the street, to get their reactions to uh, Andrew Yang's interview with us and his candidacy more generally. Uh, but before all that, Alex, fill us in on what's been happening in the news in another busy week here. Well, every week in the new normal is a busy week here in New York. Um, so here's a cu- bunch of stuff that caught my eye. I mean, the defund, refund, reimagining slash controversy, all, all that. The Times came out with a pretty good piece today. Basically, mayoral candidates are distancing themselves from the slogan, defund the police. Are they repackaging the concept or are they truly distancing themselves from the entire concept? I'm a huge supporter of what's known as defund refund, but I'm not a huge supporter of necessarily having to like hold on to slogans that have been co-opted and used against progressives just because they were born in street protests. They were great for what they were for and they got us to a place during um, the George Floyd protests, but like de Blasio's $1 billion cuts were a joke. And I think that right now, more than holding on to this verbiage is we need exact specific ways in which our mayoral candidates are going to address the police department run wild, basically. I mean, mental health, homeless services, are they all going to live under the NYPD umbrella? If so, Are there going to be new kinds of cops? Are there going to be new kind of cop EMTs? Are there going to be social civil positions, which there already are, but not that many? Um, If they live outside of the NYPD, how is that going to work with dispatch and 911? How does the FDNY and EMTs, uh, how do they factor in? I mean, right, of course, right before we recorded this, Scott Stringer, like, released this huge plan, which I was able to scan through a bit and he has a lot of bullet points that that outline a couple of these specifics not specific enough for my taste obviously it's quite substantial compared to the other candidates but 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 he didn't actually release this as a candidate um the controller's office released this so so you have to sort of take it in a in a somewhat different light as such It, it is i think an example though of how mainstream democratic politicians who are not saying the words defund the police uh, but are talking in substantial ways about shifting real responsibilities that had belonged to the department elsewhere that you can sort of back into or figure out what that means from a dollar point of view and are talking about like real levels of accountability that that had not been there in the past, when, particularly under this mayor, the, the commissioner has sort of just been allowed to do his own thing. I mean, is it disingenuous of a lot of 
like activists to hold on to the defund slogan. Also, yes, Scott Stringer calls it a blueprint for transforming policing, enhancing safety and investing in communities, which is a mouthful. And I know he put it out as comptroller, but like, you know, it's also as the mayoral candidate. Uh, Let me run through the bullet points. And then, Chrissy, I know that you've spoken extensively about the politics of protests before, so I'd love to get your take. All right. Yeah, and I'm also just curious, honestly, Alex, you bring up a really important point where as we get closer to June and the actual election date, how will all these candidates shimmy away from some of the more progressive policies they put out, say, last year when people were barely paying attention? And then as we get closer and closer to summertime and whether or not, you know, these little blips and spikes in violence are occurring still in different pockets of the city, uh, whether or not we'll see either a full 180 or just a slight back away or a bending or a a total denunciation (laughs) of progressive policies that we initially saw folks put forth. I mean, his bullet points are pretty good. Decriminalizing small offenses. He's got a multi... um, what's it called, a multi-agency response. So I guess it's going to, a lot of these other things are going to live outside of the NYPD. Mm-hmm. I'm excited to see a little more specifics. Like, for instance, if you're going to take cops out of schools, they're the only people that are allowed to physically touch kids. So are the social workers and guidance counselors, are there, is there going to be a new level of ability for these people to break up fights, let's say? And these are like, I know it's granular, but I think these are are specifics that, you know, end up being big problems in uh, execution. All right. Vaccines, the inclusion of restaurant workers, taxi drivers and the developmentally disabled is now happening under like 1B. Cuomo said that he is allowing the local governments to make the determination what fits their situation best. Obviously, for us, restaurant workers are like a big deal. I don't know if they're as big of a deal in like some tiny county and, you know, Finger Lake area, Um, but maybe... Uh, And originally, he like shot back at reporters and activists being like, it's disingenuous, cheap and insincere that we're even discussing, including restaurant workers. Um, But then I guess, you know, probably rethought that position and made a reversal, including them the very next day. He'll deny it's a reversal because we got some additional allocation of the vaccine from the federal government. So he says he's just expanding this category or allowing local authorities like Mayor de Blasio to expand this category if they choose. But that's always the yeah. game. You Mayor know, de Blasio that, couldn't help but pick at that little scab today, too, saying, like, you know, his coded Cuomo baiting language. Why? Don't poke the bear, honey. Don't poke the bear. I mean, he's not he's not strong enough to keep poking the bear. He gets, like, slapped down every time, so I don't know. Speaking of the bear... By the way, Tish James, uh, let's count these off, right? Like de Blasio, Cuomo, Trump maybe. We'll see. But like I got to say, she is uh, she is playing her position here with some verve. Uh, it's been a few days now, but th- this nursing home report uh, th- that she put out, which was fairly delicate – Maybe didn't dig as deep as it could have, but was the formal government report that mm-hmm. said the stuff Cuomo has been gaslighting everyone about uh, and uh, Zucker as health commissioner in which everything we did with nursing homes was fine and great. And, and everyone's just very confused to see otherwise just just isn't so. And that there was clearly an undercount 
of how many uh, people died in, in nursing homes who had been in nursing homes and then died, which mm-hmm. is part of the issue with the undercount. And Cuomo, remarkably, at his press conferences, our Emmy-winning, uh, fireside-chatting, you know, soul-and-conscience man, uh, was asked, like, hey, what do you say to families, you know, whatever you think you did right or wrong, what do you say to the families there? And he did not have an answer. And he spent a solid 10 minutes talking around it in a painful and confused way, trying to find a way to say he feels their pain, but he's definitely not the source of their pain, and he doesn't want to play politics. But by the way, it's definitely the Trump administration's fault. Like, it it hurt to hear. And, And I think you're seeing without Trump as everyone's bogeyman in quite the same way, the extent to which it's harder to hide, as by the way, with changing the vaccine allocations behind, I'm just following the science. When, of course, the system we have and we're supposed to have is you have scientists and politicians should listen to them, but there is no scientific answer to how vaccines should be allocated, uh, to whether or not people who have been sick should be allowed to go back to nursing homes when there's limited information there. This is actually what the political class is for, is to make these difficult decisions. And then, ideally, as Cuomo very belatedly is, to be held to account for those decisions, including when they go um, severely wrong. Well, you know, it's interesting, Harry, because we've said oftentimes on this podcast, you know, Trump and Cuomo have a lot more in common than one would like to to realize. Not just, you know, two disgruntled boys from Queens who have daddy issues, but just their management styles and their leadership styles um, are somewhat similar. And so removing Trump from the equation is going to expose some of Andrew Cuomo's tendencies, but also I think some of his failures as we see New York State, the rollout are still very high numbers. You know, this kind of like CNN tag team bro-y nonsense with his brother was quite exciting to lots of people outside of New York. But, you know, a lot of New Yorkers are really struggling. So it's interesting also because, you know, when Eric Schneiderman had to leave, it seemed like there were quite a few people who were very jazzed to put Tish James in that seat. Not necessarily for descriptive representation, but if you remember, there were a lot of people willing to move heaven and earth to make sure that Tish James became the next attorney general. Because Tish moving to that seat, it was, it was like a domino effect. I mean, everybody, it was like musical chairs, either in that moment or for your immediate future. Because Tish moves, everybody moves. It was like just a, a massive chessboard shuffling. And I'm curious as to how many of those individuals are regretting that. It reconfigured the mayoral race we're having now. Yes. For one thing, it opened it up for Jumani Williams to to end up as public advocate and to be on a different term limit cycle than everyone else. Yes. So he doesn't have to run. It changed the whole plan board. It really did. I wonder if Cuomo regrets backing Tish James so hard now yeah. over to to kind of like get out of the ex- accountability that would have rained down with Zephyr Teachout. I'm just wondering if like in his secret as secretest moments, whether he, you know, regrets his choices. Well, it seems interesting because as outspoken as Tish has been in various iterations of her career, she's been sort of you know, focused on other things, not necessarily Cuomo. So when we've seen her kind of out and about, it's like she's talking about Trump. She's talking about larger issues, but never directly related back to Andrew Cuomo specifically. Like very rarely ever have we ever seen her name check him, especially in an in a, a adversarial way. I think this is an interesting turn of events because I'm not saying that she's interested in 2022. I'm not not saying that. But I think it is also interesting as someone, if you look at her career, she has sort of prided herself. It's like, I am from the people. Like, I'm Tish. Like, everybody can kind of come to me, 
even though I have, you know, a degree from JD from Howard and a, a master's from Columbia, like she's still known as like, she's Tish. You come to her with what you need. And when it comes to this vaccine, the lack of organization, coordination, folks actually dying, it seems as though she's like, well, this is, this is what the people want from me, which is to name check people when they're, when they haven't done their job. And it's a way that I haven't seen that necessarily between uh, Tish James and Andrew Cuomo that we're now seeing. And I'm curious as to what the next few months will look like as more stories come out about just how ineffectual he has been as a leader and how many nursing homes to say nothing of prisons. Because I was like, if Tish James decides to start investigating what's been going on in our prisons upstate with the number of people who are infected and dying of COVID, I mean... It's it's a sin and a shame and probably illegal what is happening I mean, to so many people. De Blasio said something really telling where he was just like, you know, the I, I'm I'm able to vaccinate certain incarcerated people, but not other and there is no clarity around what that criteria is for which incarcerated people get the vaccine and don't get it. And I am very curious to yeah. see what happens when she starts investigating that. Um so I'm going to move it forward. Like, I'm sorry to have to report this, but Adam Kamara, can you please play taps? A beloved East Village restaurant has shuttered, and I thought it was worth mentioning. Indian Bangladeshi restaurant Milan is closing, and I don't know, it's on First Avenue around Fifth Street, and it's up these, like, big metal <gasps> stairs. Uh, with the lights and the loud music? No! Yes, I know. And it's, it's the two restaurants next door, and it's, like, supposedly they share a kitchen. <laughs> yeah, Pana 2 and Milan. And it's like, oh, do they share a kitchen? As you walk up the stairs, the, the both hosts will say, no, come in this one. And everyone says, I was always was, like, partial to the one on the left, I gotta say. That's Milan. That's the one that's closing. Oh. Um, as a stoned teenager, I would go in there and like eat until I was so I full remember when you and, could like, smoke in that restaurant. Oh, wow. I mean, I think the smoking ban, Giuliani's smoking ban, came into effect when I was a teenager. But like, either way, it um yeah it's closing it's so magical i mean the decorations hung down to like chin level my dad's favorite restaurant was there you would basically have to sit in your friend's lap and like all of the memories of pre-covid life being shoved into a small space beautiful lights laughing it's all kind of represented by milan pana too i i think it's still there but harry what's your best memory I thought too stoned to remember much. <laughs> um, yeah, Chrissy, it's gonna be it's gonna be a sad, sad day, and I wonder what they're doing with the with the lights. I remember back in the day when I went there, I used to have this massive afro, and I was at one of the tables, like kind of in a corner, and the lights were hanging down. You remember they just kept adding lights, and the lights would hang down so much. There were lights that were just kind of like nestled in my hair while I was eating. So by the time I left, I was like, why is my hair hot? And it was like, because the lights were just sitting there for 45 minutes. Oh, I'm I'm sad. I have not yeah. been, you know, in that part of town in, I mean, since March, you know? Yeah. Um, oh. So at this moment when things are shutting down, future of the city in real question, that's a perfect time to transition to this interview with Catherine Garcia who uh, thinks uh, that she could be the person to help guide us to a better future at this uncertain moment. 
All right. Welcome to FAQ NYC. We're here with Catherine Garcia, candidate for the 110th mayor of New York City. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I really want to entitle this episode Trash Talking. <laughs> Even though it's totally such a good line. Such a good <laughs> I know. So you are formerly the head of sanitation in New York. Uh, I, I think, you know, the snow removal and trash removal thus far this week has gone pretty well, but I, I can't wait to get your thoughts on it. So let's jump right in. I want to know why you're running for mayor. Obviously, I've been on a lot of these forums. Many of our listeners have have tuned into a lot of the forums. I call you the rope-a-dope candidate. <gasps> because okay. it seems like in this crowded field, everyone's talking. We know we know the pitch stories that everyone has. Everyone has their origin story, varying levels of truth to said origin stories. But it seems like in these debates, you kind of sit back and just let folks tucker themselves out and sort of say things that maybe grab the news headlines in good or bad ways. And then you kind of come in and you you kind of give your analysis, how you're going to be a leader, and then you just kind of bounce, which is a really fascinating strategy for me. But I want you to walk us through how you think that will resonate with voters in a crowded primary, an early primary in June, and ranked choice voting. And so is my rope-a-dope strategy analysis apt or do you see it as something else? Well, I, I see it as I'm running for mayor because I think the city needs someone who actually knows how to deliver services and meet the needs of everyday New Yorkers. And I can only run as myself. I can't run as someone who's a politician who likes to talk a lot um, and keep talking and keep talking. For, uh, I'm working on, I'm, I'm, I'm just working on, answering the questions in a little bit more length because I feel like New Yorkers right now are really looking for clear vision and a clear articulation and confidence that you know how to get work done, that you understand that they don't want a lot of fluff. Tell me how my kids are going to go to school. Tell me how my garbage is going to get picked up. Tell me how I'm going to be safe in my neighborhood. Don't add a lot of extra words just get that done for me and then I will be happy. I'm scared. And that's the the thing that I get from the public. I'm scared about the future. Tell me why I shouldn't be scared. Now, okay, just to follow really quickly, because I feel like there's the campaigning phase and there's the governance phase. And I feel like you're making the case. It's like the governance phase, I got it on lock. And you'll walk us through that a little bit more throughout the next half hour. But there is something to be said about the campaigning phase, because if you can't get through the campaigning phase, then actually you can't keep people safe and you can't clean their streets and and deliver goods and services for their kids. And so, you know, I would argue that our current mayor loves the campaigning phase and is a little bit bored with the governance phase. But with you, it's like you're just sort of like, I'm kind of no frills. Like, let me actually just get to do the work. But there is something about certain voters who kind of need slash want a little pizzazz, I guess. And there are a lot of candidates that are, you know, words, 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 and a whole bunch of sprinkles and jam without a lot of substance behind it. But do you think that that's a a strategy? Because we know that there are gender dynamics as well behind that strategy. Um, Highly problematic gender dynamics. But for someone who wants to do the work, do you feel like you might be missing an opportunity to be able to do the work because there's so many people and so many distractions and so many folks who are focused on the campaigning phase and quite honestly, aren't really interested in the governance part of it. 
You know, I actually see it very differently. And I mean, I actually enjoy the campaigning phase when I get to go out and meet with people uh, and the, and hear their stories and hear what they're struggling with and make those connections. I think that's incredibly important. And I'm hoping that we get further into vaccinations that will be more and more possible. Uh, Cause I do think that I am actually very good at the retail politics part of things. You know, that is how good leaders develop is you're going to talk to your front line and you're going to make a connection with them so that they are all on the same page as you are uh, pushing forward with the mission. Um, so I'm not as razzle dazzle, perhaps, as uh, some folks in the race, but I actually also think that what resonates with New Yorkers right now is really about competence and is really like, tell me like what your vision is, but make sure that I understand that you can do the job. You know, they are really, I would say, interviewing all of us for the role of mayor and want to know that there is competency. They don't want to see school rollouts the way they've seen them. They don't want to see the vaccine rollout. Um, And I think you will see our campaign as we move forward. We will have some fun with it. Uh, And when I was at Sanitation, you know, I had a fashion show. You know, we had a food waste fair. Heron Preston was our fashion designer for the Department of Sanitation. Um, So there are some creative ways to also get the message out that I think will be just fun for voters. And we need a little fun right now. But I also think it's a crowded field. I think that it will not start to coalesce till close to April. Mm. If not after that, we are getting over the national election still and recuperating from it. And then people are not really aware that the primary is in June and not September. Even people who are politically active are very surprised to hear that. And I think that the everyone will begin or is beginning and will continue to sort of push through towards April of listening because they know that it touches their everyday lives. And ranked choice voting, to be quite honest with you, means they're more candidates out there doing get out the vote. And I actually think that's a great upside to ranked choice is having a lot of candidates in the field going and recruiting voters into the process. Uh, Because the last primary that was open, we had sub 700,000 voters. Mm -hmm. That is really small for a city of 8.4 million. In that primary in February, Christine Quinn was clearly going to be mayor. She had as much support in the polls as the rest of the field combined. And that far out, you know, just in months from the election itself, Anthony Weiner had just come into the lead for the first time. So so we know these things can, uh, can take some interesting turns. Uh, I have a couple of train questions I wanted to ask you. But real quick first, this has been such an odd Zoom campaign you know, people have observed you can have these crazy forms back to back to back where often you're repeating a lot of the same thoughts and ideas because the candidates in the press don't have to physically move from one location to another. So it's just sort of endless and a lot of repetition. Some candidates have tried to sort of get around this by doing more in-person stuff. Is that doable at this point? I'm thinking about how Biden stepped back and sort of set an example there and Trump kept doing rallies. And given the uncertainty going forward, at some point, do you have to show up or, or, or does this just really come down to the virus and the circumstance we're in? I mean, we have to be cautious as a campaign because we don't want to spread the virus to anyone on the campaign uh, or any of the members of the public. But we've done some handing out of literature, talking to people on the street, 
and events like that um, where everyone's masked, everyone's outside. And I think that will continue and expand. I mean, I went and did canvassing for Biden in Pennsylvania, and there's a way to do it safely. And I think that you will see campaigns doing more and more of that. Hmm. So I always ask this of candidates, how's the money looking? <laughs> and like, who, who are you resonating with? Because as you mentioned, we have ranked choice voting. And so it's a different type of building a base. And, you know, we've seen, I, I sort of mentioned this weeks ago, like, will we see a survivor style? People start teaming up, you know, twos and threes. And I mean, maybe Stringer and Morales, we saw a little Gustavo Rivera, you know, co-endorsement. I was like, are we starting to start to see little little pockets of, you know, twos and threes? But who do you see your base as, as far as New Yorkers and like really trying to get the message out? And then how do you think that that affects fundraising and, and really moving your message forward for June in this truncated primary where you won't have the summertime to sort of point to realistically some of the successes you had as sanitation commissioner to say like, hey, it's summertime, trash, you know, there's certain systems I put in place. Aren't you all happy? I did that. Like you can't point to that in June and July because the primary will already be over. Yeah, no, so we are using a real data-driven system to identify the Catherine voter uh, and focusing on those. And, you know, th- those exist on Staten Island through South Brooklyn. You know, I'm from Brownstone, Brooklyn, so have a, have a few roots here. Uh, and then through uh, the eastern portion of Queens and the Bronx. Uh, the Bronx is pretty wide open right this second. Uh, and we'll pick off some in, in Manhattan uh, from the the great wall of some of the candidates think they have built, but I think it's a little weak. Mm. Uh, but you're going to have to run a citywide campaign because you do want to be the number two if you're not the number one. So after you go get your number one voters, it's also like you need to make sure you're also number two. So you can anticipate seeing a lot of me right. around the city. Now, what about your message do you think is resonating with the Staten Island voter? Well, Staten Island voters, if you have spent a lot of time out there, which I have, uh, they're very bread and butter voters. You know, they want their streets paved. They want their snow plowed. They want their garbage picked up. They want to be able to get to work. And they'd like you to try and do something about the Staten Island Expressway traffic. You know, that is what they vote on. Very bread and butter. Mm-hmm. They don't want their property taxes to go up. They're very worried about that. But they also have a lot of entrepreneurs on the island who want to be able to open back up their restaurants uh, and do that safely. So I think that no one's talking to them right now. And my intention is to, you know, continue to spend time out there. So shifting from number two to the numbers three and four, you just put out your transportation plan. Um, I I noticed with great interest that one element there is the uh, Utica Avenue extension, which is much older than like our combined ages combined as an idea. And it's also something Mayor Bill de Blasio brought up, uh, the great fanfare in 2015, and then poof, uh, just just never seemed to to go anywhere. So I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that. And specifically, because obviously this, this, this is the state in a lot of ways, if there's a, a financing plan or a way that the city could facilitate actually making that happen, so that would be pretty transformative for uh, a lot of Brooklynites. Yes, no, and I mean, I think we need to still be thinking big about infrastructure, because we need to be a city that is growing uh, and having great transit opens up economic opportunity across the city uh, and really opens up the concept of having more businesses. But 
when you think about what the financing could look like, and obviously this would have to be done with a lot of other government partners, so I don't want to say we would go it alone, you can think about what we did on the number seven line, where we created a fund based off the increase in property values created by new transit. And they were able to bond that and build it and then get the money back. And staying with the uh, transfer just a second, um, there's been, uh, as happens sometimes, a a, a spate of incidents involving uh, subway shovers uh, Mm -hmm. recently. And obviously train traffic, uh, train ridership, excuse me, is way, way down. And yet the crime numbers have been disturbingly stable given the, the diminished ridership and the nighttime shutdown and so on. Obviously, that ties in with a lot of issues involving uh, uh, crime and mental illness and homelessness to some extent. But, you know, as as somebody who's sort of been the get stuff done person for this last administration, which wasn't always otherwise great at getting stuff done, I'm just interested in what you think is happening and uh, should be happening right now in terms of the the, the trains and enforcement or help down there. I I actually think that disbanding homeless outreach officers who were engaging with that population on a regular basis and ensuring that they were granted services really hurt their access to services because nobody else is really going down there in the same way and getting them connected to the shelter system, to supportive housing, to all of the possible options that are out there. And so there, there is a feeling that underground is a little bit of the Wild West right now. And you need to ensure that people feel safe. You know, it's very clean and it gets you places really fast, but we have to feel safe there because we can't go back to the 70s or 80s when I didn't take the subway after eight o'clock at night because it was too dangerous. We cannot return to that. We need to have uh, both social service and PD working together. Uh, for the population that is suffering from either mental illness or substance abuse. And is shutting down the system at night, in your view, has that been helpful, unhelpful, or or, or hasn't made so much of a difference? The trains are still running, but, you know, shutting down the the ridership. I mean, I think it's helped in terms of cleanliness. Um, I think that we can start to think about reopening them. Uh, But it does at least give homeless services folks a longer period of time to engage with people who are not housed. And, you know, rather than they have five minutes as the train's turning around at the end of the line, they actually get off and they can talk to them and try and get them to trust them enough for them to come inside, which, you know, it can be a huge hurdle. So I've got two kind of de Blasio related questions for you. (laughs) So moving from the subways, which is Cuomo land, back to de Blasio. So when de Blasio appointed you, and I've always credited him with appointing and hiring really top-notch people and possibly not listening to them. But that's a whole nother episode as issue. Um, but when he pointed you, he said it was part of his plan to have a city government embrace, quote, a new set of values compared to his predecessor. Um, and so walk us through how that worked when it came to sanitation. Well, you know, for sanitation, it's a little bit different than other agencies because obviously we serve everyone. We have always served everyone. And I know to this day they are serving everyone. Um, But it was looking at it as what could you do with your contracts? Could you use more minority and women-owned business contractors? And to the extent that we weren't already locked into some very long-term contracts where we had more discretion, we were able to increase that. 
And I would uh, credit Kevin Wells, who I brought on with really being at the forefront of making it easier for the agency to identify businesses that could really do the jobs that we needed. Um, Because sometimes you go into these databases and you can't tell whether or not XYZ Corp actually really is someone that you can use or not. And Mm -hmm. so I think that was incredibly helpful. Uh, But also in terms of, you know, I hired the first first deputy commissioner who was uh, Latino. I promoted the first four-star woman. They, of course, now both retired on me, but um, really thinking through and ensuring that we were giving opportunity to everyone uh, as we continue to serve the city of New York. Now, do you have a, a measurement by which from when you came in to when you left, can you measure your success? Like, did you increase X percent number of women or people of color or Black people in particular, or people from different neighborhoods or boroughs? How do you measure your your tenure as commissioner? I mean, I think doing those sort of top-notch hires uh, was very important. I mean, the challenge with sanitation on the front line is how few women take the test. Mm-hmm. Um, and it we did everything we could to try and get the word out there, but we still ended up with only a few hundred women in any given class. Um, and, you know, to this day, still a real challenge for, for the agent, even though uh, Miss Staten Island, the former Miss Staten Island is a sanitation worker now. So you can be a beauty queen and a sanitation worker at the same time. Uh, but that has been one of the real ongoing challenges, but we are a pretty racially diverse organization uh, in, in terms of the uniform services. And what's so the people, breakdown? Uh, I think it was, um, it, we were more than 50% uh, minority, Black or Latino or Asian. There are very few Asians, but Black or Latino. So do you think that your experience of sanitation might help you in dealing with the NYPD in particular? And I ask, because I know you brought up the idea of having uh, officers be required to live in the city, which, which other candidates yep. have then followed. And, and also the NYPD is more gender diverse, but, but I feel like dealing with a, a overwhelmingly male workforce at sanitation might uh, give you some insight into dealing with the workforce and the unions. Sure. And I do think it gives me a unique insight into the culture of a uniformed agency. Uh, they actually are more diverse between men and women than sanitation is by far. Little girls apparently do not grow up to be garbage men. Uh, But in terms of PD, it is a management challenge. I mean, they have a chain of command that needs to be followed. Orders should go out and then people get held accountable. That is the culture that I know at sanitation. uh, And that is the culture that I think PD has lost. And I don't only point to the fact that they have been treating anyone of color extremely poorly in recent years, but I'm saying they didn't wear their masks all summer. Like little things matter. Uh, There is an order that comes down from the commissioner that says you must wear a mask when you're on patrol. Oh, and you must also not be on your phone while you're on patrol. These used to be infractions that were dealt with. When? Not hardly. I'm sorry, when? Uh, Just when you said this culture was lost, like when was this a a more efficient or competent culture with that chain of command? So with that, those sorts of little things, you are talking back in the 2000s. That was back when phones started coming out. 
and so I have definitely proposed that we need to increase the age of new recruits uh, as we move forward, that they should be 25, that new recruits should live in the city, which I know requires state legislation, but I think is an important thing for us to have be true. Um, but we also need to ensure that we have a culture that we're building that is about having police officers be guardians, regardless of the neighborhood they're operating in. You know, Black Lives Matter. My brother Matthew's life matters. He has to feel the same way that I would feel whether walking down any street in the city of New York. And that isn't true today. We have to make that true. That is a lot of training. But it also is what do who do we promote? Who gets promoted? How are they evaluated? Are they walking the walk uh, and talking the talk? And those are who we have to identify to change the culture at NYPD. So I have lots of <laughs> lots of thoughts on NYPD and leadership and the culture because we've seen, you know, in other cities, training is a start. But, you know, yes. all of the officers who contributed to George Floyd's death, all of them had gone through extra training. Some of them had even gotten masters in certain programs. So that's just one conversation, right? Uh, then we've got this idea of who would be your ideal commissioner and mm-hmm. thinking about that. But also with this kind of circling back to this union conversation and you saw the constraints you had as sanitation commissioner working around, say, contracts that were there and that type of union-esque type politics, how do you propose to work with or around the police union when we know that bad behavior is oftentimes ignored, the benevolent association is incredibly powerful, the union's incredibly powerful, we're paying money for their bad behavior, so what's your strategy kind of walking in first, first, you know, I hate the 100 days, but let's just say first 100 days, where are you on policing? So who, you know, give us an idea of who the commissioner would be. What are your priorities beyond training and, and recruiting to really fundamentally change an organization that for many communities seems like it's calcified and just immune to any sort of progress? No, so there needs to be a complete look at all of the upper management. And my preferred candidate, I don't have someone, I mean, I have somewhat of a short list, but you know, I would like to see a woman in that role. I would like to see someone of color in that role. But I want to make sure we are getting the absolute very best person to make transformative change. But transformative change does not mean people aren't safe. And when I talk about management, Like, yes, you're right. Training, if it's just a module we all take in the police academy, doesn't get you very far. You check the box, you did it, and then you go back to doing exactly what you were going to do anyway. But if you are held accountable via discipline and via how you get promoted, once you are past the rank of captain and it is discretionary who gets the next star, who's getting promoted? What is their background? Have they created connections with their community? Those are things we should be evaluating because if that's who gets promoted and gets rewarded, that changes culture. And that moves you in a completely different direction. You know, I worked very closely with the Sanitation uh, Men's Association, though that was the one thing I could not get him to change because that is the name of the union. I was like, Harry, there are women on your force. There are women members. But uh, he's like, when I'm gone. You, you all can change it. Uh, and we had very similar goals. 
We wanted the agency to be effective. We wanted, uh, I wanted the employees to be safe. I wanted to ensure that they were being productive out there. And he agreed. We didn't always have the same way we wanted to get there. And there were always negotiations. And I will tell you that if he didn't talk to one of the top managers every single day, multiple times a day, it would have been a very unusual day. So I would invite the PBA to try and work in partnership. But if they can't work in partnership, then we would go it alone. But they should want their members to be respected and they should want their members to be safe and they should want their members to be well-regarded. That's not true right now. And it is only by working together that you can really foster that trust with communities. And so if they want to be a part of rebuilding that trust, I welcome it. If they are not interested, then, you know, we will have a more confrontational relationship. Is that rebuilding possible with someone like Pat Lynch or someone like Commissioner Shea? Well, I've already said that I would change the commissioner. I can't obviously change the head of the union. I don't know Pat Lynch. The suggestion would be maybe not, but, you know, I am willing to be open until he tells me to my face that I'm not going to work with you. So shifting unions for a second, if I'm not mistaken, you are an alum of uh, PS321. I am. As well as Stuyvesant. Uh-huh. Um, so I, I have just a few schools questions for you, starting with how we're doing with this uh, sort of reopening that, that, that has been announced to great fanfare and more or less exists, and whether or not you think the teachers union and the administrators union have been playing uh, productive or counterproductive roles in uh, getting us toward safety and reopening. Oh, I think that the reopening plan has been somewhat disastrous, bad for teachers, bad for principals, bad for families. Nobody knows when school is open or closed. You know, I was with someone who, you know, has three kids, you know, two are five, one is 10. And they gave her the option of having one of her kids go back five days a week. She's like, but how am I going to deal with that if I have the other two kids that I have to manage and they need to be home because they're got to get on Zoom? I can't I can't be at three places at once. So this is just not working at all. And we did not invite, you know, principals and teachers really to the table uh, to talk about reopening. And I think it should have been in person for all the young kids five days a week and for people who the children who have special needs who really don't do well on zoom and had that be uh, used all of our space if we needed to, to ensure that uh, they could be socially distant, but we should have had much more communication to the front lines, you know, just about basics. How do you dismiss a third grader If usually as the teacher, you need to actually physically make sure that that kid and that person are related and they're not going home with strangers. And now we're not allowed to actually be that close. So how how does this happen? But also to really have made some more investments in virtual school. You You could have had classrooms without borders. You could have invited you know, kids to come in and and watch the best bio teacher the city has give a lecture. So, I mean, when you look across the country at some of the other unions and their perspective on it, 
Do I think it could have gone smoother? Yes, but I do think that they they were trying to balance the issues, this, the fear of the membership with uh, the knowledge that kids really needed to be back in classrooms and teachers have shown up. They've been in their buildings. So looking ahead, I, I'm going to make this like a, a triple question because there's so much triple. you need to do, only so much time. <laughs> so you, you've said that uh, District 15 um, has been something of a model for what the city mm-hmm. should be doing in terms of integration or, or desegregation mm-hmm. exercises. I'm hoping you can talk about that and, and particularly if that means exporting exactly what's happened there or, or the idea of doing this on the district level uh, is a guideline. Um, as a STI graduate, <clears throat> I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about the uh, Shazats, as uh, Scott Stringer consistently calls them. And I think it had a different name when I was a kid. I, 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 I don't yeah, same. Uh, just the test or something or SHSATs. But uh, what you think should should be happening there and significantly how, how, how important you think that is or is not to the broader conversation about uh, how open our schools are? Like, like, is this mostly about the elite schools or, or are those a distraction, as some people argue, from what needs to be happening in the much broader system? All right. So I'm going to try and remember all, all parts oh, of your wait, question. I forgot one. And, and, okay. and. <laughs> <laughs> well, just uh, what, what the attributes of a good chancellor would be in your view. Uh, who'd be able to implement the sort of vision you have. And that's it. Oh, okay. Just a few things. Uh, so I, the district 15 model, the reason that I like it, where it got rid of screens for middle school, but maintained some parental choice. You might not have gotten your first choice, but there's some parental choice, but it really actually went and talked to parents across the district, not just the parents of PS321 kids coming out of there, but really parents across the district and got buy-in across the district uh, for the plan changes and has been very successful. People have been pleased with the results of what the education their kids are getting and the changes of the demographics that have occurred. And so I believe that you need to have parents deeply involved in the conversation around removing screens. And one of the reasons why I think you should remove screens is an elementary school kid who doesn't do their homework or arrives late for school, it's probably that there is something happening either with the parents or with their housing or with something else. It's not really in the control of an eight or nine-year-old. And you want to make sure that We are giving them every opportunity. Um, When I get to high school, I actually think a little bit differently about then. I think the talk about the specialized schools is like we consistently just talk about scarcity, the scarce number of seats, which is why I have proposed building new high schools that would use grade point average like Texas has done at the University of Texas system that has made a big difference in the diversity of those campuses but I would not change the SHSAT or whatever it is called at this point in time. Uh, as we move forward, I think we need to be looking more broadly at why do we not have more high school seats that kids want to attend? Uh, and also to put them closer to some of the big population centers we have in the city of New York. There are a lot of neighborhoods that don't really have high schools in the same way that Manhattan or other parts of the city do. So I've got a question because some of this stuff is moot until we get this vaccination and this virus under control. Yes. 
So part of your branding as a candidate is that you're the manager. You're basically like, I'm the adult in the room. (laughs) I'm the one who can actually (laughs) literally get the trains to run on time and the trucks to pick up your trash. So what do you think the mayor has done well with this vaccination rollout and sort of getting coronavirus under control? What do you think he has not done so well? And what would you do differently if you were in charge? The vaccine rollout has been exceptionally poor and also surprising. I thought you were going to say exceptional. I was like, ooh, goodness, that's interesting. (laughs) No, I don't think so. Uh, And surprising from someone who looks at equity all the time and talks about neighborhoods that got hit the hardest, talks about neighborhoods that have limitations on broadband and on language access and on, you know, disability and mobility. So we designed a program that helped none of those people at all, or didn't design a program. And the program we ended up with helped none of those people at all. And you see that in the numbers, which are incredibly stark. So you failed to actually think about the population you were going to serve. You created a technology that is nearly impossible for, I would say, someone of the millennial or Generation Z to get through, let alone uh, someone who is in their 80s. Uh, You made it so that people have to travel in the cold, in the winter, and often stand outside. And we're talking about people. These are even the mobile seniors. We should have really thought through the vaccine and who was going to get the shot back in the summer. So we're not having these conversations and like sanitation workers are still not in the one B program, even as restaurant workers, I think are now going to be in the one B program and you actually need them to stay well, (laughs) just put it that way. Uh, And we should have leaned into our nonprofit sector that has relationships with all of these communities and gotten them ready for the vaccine. So let me educate you about what's coming. Let me talk to you about when it will be coming. Okay, we're gonna touch base again. Let me make the appointment for you. Oh, you can't get out of your house. Well, we're gonna ensure that there's someone who comes to you. Like for example, the homebound elderly who have home care services, oh, that's all paid for by the city. We actually know where they live. We could have actually had a program that went house to house, did their caregiver and did the elderly person and protected a huge population of the most vulnerable. But we also need to be thinking about the fact that we will get past the 1B priority and then you and I will be eligible, which will greatly expand the population that is eligible. We don't have the capacity in the distribution system to do the entire population right now. We should go back and think about, we use schools in H1N1. They have refrigerators, they have freezers, not for a Pfizer vaccine, but they have it for the other vaccines. They would be able to manage those. You have school nurses on site. Uh, There are also medical professionals in many of the other agencies, like even in sanitation, we have doctors, so that you're not burdening the hospitals who are overburdened with COVID right now and pulling nurses out of that capacity when they're caring for patients. Uh, So there is a wide variety of how this could have been done so much better. But I think the first piece was like, you have to actually plan. At sanitation, it's 96 degrees, we think about snow. Uh, You knew a vaccine was coming and you're just totally surprised 
that it has arrived and we don't have any infrastructure. We didn't have sites initially. I'm sure it will get better. I hope it will get better. Um, as I've said to people at City Hall, it's like, you can copy anything you want. <laughs> Please take it and copy it. Uh, Do you believe in ice cream like- trucks for vaccination distribution? So I'd like ice cream trucks for ice cream distribution. Um, but actually, New York City has, uh, they have, we have medical vans. We have uh, that infrastructure. We could have done it if we had been really thoughtful and intentional. So one more fast set of things, and then we're going to get super fast with our, our lightning round. Thank you for taking the time. Uh, just a few trash-related questions. Um, I also have all sorts of lead questions and housing questions and all that. We'll have to have you, we hope, back on to uh, discuss some of those. First off, to return to where we started, uh, how did the snow operation go this week in your view? Having been oh, I, thought, I thought snow operation went very well. Um, I knew how they were set up. Uh, I did you set it up or is it a different setup from that you either? Oh, no, no, they're set up basically the same as it's like we were thinking about in the fall. Um, and you know, their snow routes, how they're, how they do the snow routes was set. Um, I was a little worried because I knew they were upgrading something over the weekend to the computer side, but no, they, I think that they really hit it out of the park, particularly on that first overnight. And I can just pull up the public maps on Plow NYC, and I know where to look for my problem areas, uh, sort of my canary in the coal mine of they're having a problem or they're not. And it was it was really good. Uh, and then it was a tough storm, but they stayed on it all day long. And it will be a lot of digging out now. I saw them early this morning doing uh, the beginnings of crosswalks and bus stops to try and make inroads on all the pedestrian infrastructure and the bike infrastructure as we move forward, but that was a tough storm. There's a lot of snow um, and it didn't stop snowing. It was snowing this morning again. I was like, what is happening? Uh, though I did have this situation of, you know, as I said, I was out earlier today and I was walking up my block, coming back home and someone's unbearing their car and putting all their snow on my sidewalk. I was like, I just dug this out. Please, you cannot put this all on my sidewalk again because it's going to get treacherous and I'm going to have to dig it out again. Uh, but I was I was um, polite in my recommendation that they please stop throwing snow on my sidewalk. Uh, it's the ultimate zero-sum game here. I'm, I'm watching people on my very narrow block uh, get their cars out and just block the other cars in. Right. You know, hopefully we get a little melting. Uh, hopefully there's a little melting. But it, it when there's this much snow... There's not a lot of places to put it. They will start digging out some of the very narrow blocks with the front end loaders and taking those to snow fields and to melters. Last, last trash question, and then we must uh, lightning round, is uh, can you talk just a little about de Blasio's cuts, the services that we're going to need from the next mayor with potentially much less money here, and whether or not there's still any chance to get to zero waste by 2030? Yes. No, the the cuts uh, that we took in the spring, well, that really took effect in July, uh, were really deep. They cut more than $100 million from our budget. And those were both cleaning uh, people because, uh, you know, you don't actually need to pick up a litter basket on a Sunday. Nobody's out. Nobody uses a litter basket on a Sunday or on a holiday. Never happens. So we need no service. And then they cut the organics program and the electronic waste program. And we can't get to zero waste without those. Food waste and yard waste are a third of our garbage. 
And right now it's all going to landfills or to incinerators. If we want to make a difference for the climate, we have to radically expand that across the city. And I've committed to do that as soon as I'm mayor, uh, because we don't get to zero by 30 any other way. And now it will be even harder to achieve because these things take time. Well, we'll have to have you back on because I want to talk a lot more about sort of recycling programs and school recycling programs and the vaccine and all this other stuff. But now we must do lightning round. A, because you have a campaign to run and we have podcasts to do, Harry Siegel. Okay, so first question on the lightning round. Do you support fair fares? I do. Okay. Second question. Do you have an IDNYC? I do not. You do not. Okay. All right. Harry, take it over for the the other lightnings. Or the right size. I think our patrol strength is the right size. Is Kendra's law over, under, or properly applied? I believe it is properly applied. What should the uh, city be doing to help renters after this uh, eviction moratorium is lifted? We need to bring renters, landlords, and their mortgage companies together to do workouts so that the pain is shared. It can't be on the backs of the tenants. And I wouldn't want to give money to the tenants who give to the landlord who give it to a big bank. And um, Yankees are Mets, Knicks are Nets. um, And I suppose Giants are Jets. Giants. Yeah, but they're in Jersey. Though I've raised a Steeler fan, so I'm just going to admit it now. And a real Madrid fan. That's I don't fine. Know how that That's fine. <laughs> and I mean, the only reason why you get a slight pass with me on the Steelers fans is because they have a black coach. And so I was raised with like supporting black coaches and black quarterbacks. That's the only reason why there's like a, a window for me. <laughs> and he's won a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and he's won a lot. Oh, but oh, Big Ben. That's a whole nother podcast episode. No, he's a, he's a problem. But he's, he's a real problem. <laughs> problem. So, um, Commissioner, thank you so much for joining us. Good luck on the campaign trail, the virtual one, and also when you all go back uh, in person. And hopefully you'll come back on closer to June, I guess, and answer more questions and fill in the blanks for us so the voters can have a, an informed decision uh, for this really important race. I appreciate it. Great being with you. Thank you. We'll do more lightning round next time. <laughs> I love New York, yeah. Capital of the world. It's just so diverse. I don't know, the overall atmosphere. (laughs) I don't know. You're listening to The People's Podcast, a collaboration between FAQ NYC and NYU journalism students Sarah, Wakas, and myself, Lee. In FAQ's interview with Andrew Yang, he said his top concern would be bringing the city back from COVID. To do this, he said he would implement a vaccination strategy in which people must confirm their vaccination status on their phone as a condition for gathering at cultural events, conferences, and so on. We wanted to know what people thought of this. That's definitely an interesting question. Um, My friends and I have also kind of explored that thought as well. Um, I think that it just has to be done in, a, in the right way. I understand the intention behind it, but it has to be done in a way where it's not ostracizing different um, groups of people or separating them because they chose not to get the vaccine. 
Yeah, definitely. Because then you could, once you prove you're vaccinated, you could like just go wherever, which would be nice. Sounds like a smart system. I think getting the vaccination rate up, I think, would make people feel more comfortable and allow people allow more things to reopen. I mean, obviously, we'd still have to do mask wearing and all of that, but I think making sure the vaccine rollout is better, more efficient, more people have access to it. I is I think that makes the biggest difference in like actually like getting the city back to what it was. I think that it's everybody's individual right decision to get vaccinated or not and they shouldn't be discriminated against if they decide not to. Mayoral candidate Andrew Yang's flagship proposal is a basic income for New Yorkers most in need. He said around 6% of New Yorkers, those living in extreme poverty, would receive $160 to $170 a month from a $1 billion fund. It would be the largest such project of any city in the country, he said in his interview with FAQ. We wanted to know what people thought of this. Um, I'd be in favor of it, but also I feel like there would need to be a housing program as well for homeless people because a lot of people can't get a job because they don't have an address. $15 an hour. A guy that makes anybody that makes $15 an hour is dead meat. They're not going to live in New York. If they're lucky and they got a roommate, they might be able to live on Staten Island. (laughs) I think that in theory that could work. But I feel like there's way more um, poor people than he might think there is. I think that would be okay if there was some sort of commitment attached to it on the recipient side to show that they're making some kind of an effort to either get help or get a job. Andrew Yang has floated the idea of opening a casino on Governor's Island as a way of raising tax revenue to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars from tourists for the city's schools and other community services. We wanted to know what people thought of this. Yeah, I support that proposal because if it's not in New York City, it's going to be somewhere else and they're going to be making money. So, yeah, even though it's like morally whatever, it's gray area, I still think it's smart because someone's going to be making the money from a casino. So I would rather be New York City. Oh, that sounds horrible. Casino is dirty. Mm-hmm. It's like, I think it's just artificial money. I don't think it attracts the right people. New York is a classy city. I feel like casinos are very corrupt. I feel like they're made to make people lose money. Like, casinos are, they're, they're programmed to make people lose money. You know, I, I don't believe in, in, like, gambling in casinos, personally. Uh I feel like, if anything, it could add to homelessness because people are losing their money gambling, you know? I don't know. No, I don't know why a casino is a good option. Casinos are meant for gambling and wasting more money and gaining more money. I don't think that was a nice choice. I feel it could have been a little more like a charitable way. I think New York can survive without having to attract dirty business. Personally, I'll be honest, it doesn't really matter to me, but I do understand the concerns of kind of enabling a bad habit of gambling. Um, We already have one that's not too far from there either. We already have one in New York City. Um, So personally, I don't think it's necessary, but I do understand, you know, you do want to attract more tourists, but I feel like it's New York City. People come here anyways. (laughs) Yeah, I think we have a lot of good tourism spots already. I don't think we need to have another one. I don't think it's smart to have another large area that someone could bring a gun in. Like, we, are, we can't even handle school shootings. How are we going to handle having a casino where people are getting drunk and spending money and not in the right headspace? Casinos, depending on where you are, if it was in Vegas, go ahead. Gamble your money in Vegas, because that's what Vegas is known for. 
Andrew Yang said in his interview with FAQ that he wants to reform the NYPD by installing a civilian police commissioner, retraining police to de-escalate situations, sending the appropriate response team to a 911 call, and reducing the overall number of police. We wanted to know what people thought of this. Yes, I'm actually within the, I work within that field. I'm a licensed social worker. So I think having the appropriate services to meet the needs of the community could definitely just support New York City as a whole. I think over the years, the NYPD has definitely helped make New York a safer place with less crime, for sure, because New York used to be really bad about crime, and now it's relatively safe. But I feel like policing is definitely necessary to keep it safe here. I mean, I think a lot of money goes into it that could be spread into other places, like helping homeless people as well, like, again, housing. Um, I think there's just a lot of social programs that could happen if money was taken away from NYPD. There's a lot of things that police officers have done in the past that were totally wrong and totally uncalled for, which is, like, the worst thing you could expect from caring of people who you think would protect you. So it would be good to have a civilian who understands, who, un who knows their way around a place and understand like where these people are coming from. Yeah, I think that's smart. It's good if the police represents the communities that they serve. Just living in a minority community, um, there are challenges that we face and that we experience as we um, just end up working with the NYPD, so I think improvements is always necessary, change is always good, so that way we can work as one team rather than feeling like we're working against each other. A lot, not all, but a good handful of police people choose like violence and aggression before they choose yeah. like de-escalation. Like if someone starts to throw hands, they whip out their taser. Like that shouldn't be the first step, I think. Finally, we received a voicemail from Oliver, who had this to say about Andrew Yang's plan to provide a monthly basic income to New York City's neediest. First off, I just want to say you guys did a great job with him last week. I really appreciated your straightforwardness. I haven't heard an interview with him like that. My main you know, concern or question with regard to his plan is not whether or not it's a good thing. I think everyone can agree that direct cash assistance to the neediest New Yorkers is a good thing. But, you know, as someone who prides himself on the numbers, it seems like he's being pretty um, obtuse about the actual plans to implement this uh, this program. And that's something you can do when you're running for president because, you know, the debate about, you know, as a sovereign currency, our ability to pull this off is a whole big thing. But with a city, you know, a city budget that's, that's heading into a fiscal crisis, we need specifics. And... You know, yesterday on Brian Lair, he said that in response to a listener question that, you know, if folks who got the cash assistance spent it on housing, that that would be a good thing. And, and so if, if that's what it was, then that's great. And, okay, that makes sense. But so then, you know, how does this affect NYCHA residents? Are, are, are you know, is this money going to NYCHA? Are you going to cut social services to fund this program? Um, that's my main concern. All we've heard so far is that he's going to augment it with, philanthropic funds, but what does that, what does that mean? Um, and uh, I also think that, you know, we should be wary of, of, you know, when he's giving us these vague answers, is he really, is he talking about cuts to other social services in, in, in exchange for this? Thank you for listening to The People's Podcast. If you have anything you would like to share about this episode, call 
1-800-227-6010 and leave a message. F-A-Q. FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists and Artists. We're headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and recorded this week from the boroughs of Brooklyn and Manhattan. A special thank you to our guest, Catherine Garcia, candidate for New York City mayor and former sanitation commissioner. Our executive producer is Alex Brooklyn and Adam Kamara mixed and edited this episode. Be safe, be well, wear a mask, and we'll see you next week. So let's uh, jump over to this interview. Man. Can you all hear that? Yeah. What is it? Hey. I can't. Hey, well, well, one of you just do a transitional phrase like I was just trying to. No, no, just do it. We can't hear it that bad. (laughs) 